I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k flats. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. Hey there, it's Lars. Thanks for checking out the Lars Larson podcasting experience and have a fantastic day. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I got to share this with you because this story is getting a lot of traction. In fact, you've probably seen it on television, may have seen it in the Daily Dead Fish Wrapper, the pathetic Oregonian. Uh, it may even turn up in the Seattle Times or elsewhere. But here's the headline, and I want you to listen carefully because those of us in the words business, I think we ought to take words seriously. If I say somebody is a convicted murderer, I'd best be telling the truth. In other words, you don't just say, well, I think he killed somebody. If I say he's a convicted murderer, he should be a convicted murderer. And if he's not, then I'm being dishonest. Here's the headline from the fish wrapper. Gas stoves are hazardous to your health, Multnomah County Report says. Now, the thing is the newspaper will say, well, we're just reporting on what we're told. No, you should actually be skeptical. Gas stoves are hazardous, not might be, not maybe, they are hazardous. And then they modify it in the first line of the story. Your gas stove can make you and your children sick. That's the message of a new report released yesterday by Multnomah County, which recommends transitioning away from natural gas stoves and other gas appliances because they release dangerous air pollutants. The report says that children living in homes with natural gas stoves are 42% more likely to experience asthma symptoms and 24% more likely to be diagnosed with lifetime asthma. So Multnomah County has a brand new study. Well, I shot out a note to my friend, Todd Myers, at the Washington Policy Center because Todd has really good connections when it comes to things like studies on pollution. And here's what he found out. He said, Lars, I looked at the study, and he puts study in scare quotes, and it cites a report from EPA in 2008. Now, that's 14, almost 15 years ago. And he says what that report did was look at previous studies. So the studies themselves are about 15 to 20 years old. Multnomah County didn't do a study. They looked back at something from 2008 that looked back at studies that were even older than that. He says also in a quick search of the EPA study, which is their only source, it notes there is no correlation between gas stoves and asthma in single-family homes only in multifamily homes. So I went back to the fish wrapper story and thought, maybe I missed that part. In other words, in apartment buildings, apartment buildings, you have higher levels of asthma where there's a natural gas stove. But in single family homes, you don't. You say, well, why would there be that difference? Maybe it's square footage. 
What Todd says is they may actually be measuring the impacts due to poverty, not gas stoves. But I haven't looked at it closely, and the study is 260 pages long. I couldn't find a single reference to the 42% in the EPA study, but they may, may have been taking data from the appendix and then applying it. He says, frankly, it doesn't surprise me that gas stoves would have more nitrous oxide in the house than electric stoves. This is going to be some residual impact from burning methane. The question is how big an impact, and the number seems way too high to me. It's also odd that they're using a 2008 report with studies from before that and then releasing it as though it is a brand new finding. That makes me skeptical. And then he he left me with one paragraph that he had pulled out of this old EPA report from almost 15 years ago. And the key line is this. No significant associations were found between levels of nitrous oxide and symptoms for children living in single-family homes. Now, go take a look at the fish wrapper story or consider the story you saw on television and ask yourself, The scare headline is, natural gas stoves are hazardous to your health. And what do they base that on? A 2008 report drawn from studies that are older than that, studies that say there are no health hazards, adverse health effects, no sign of them in single-family homes, only in apartments. And as Todd pointed out, the most likely cause there, what is the biggest difference in most cases between people who live in single-family homes and people who live in multi-family homes, meaning apartments and condos and the like? The answer usually is income. And is there a higher incidence of asthma among kids in low-income families than in high-income families? And do they have as much access to the doctor or to medicines or anything else? And you know what the answer is. I also know what I think the agenda is here. Natural gas is being attacked from all sides. And then I'll point out that the natural gas, the folks in the, in the Northwest, and I got no dog in the fight other than that I use natural gas in my home, Northwest Natural Gas and the other suppliers of this valuable fuel that has helped cut air pollution in America dramatically over the last 20 years, they weren't even invited to the party. Multnomah County didn't go to them and say, hey, we think we found some studies that say your stuff is making kids sick. And Northwest Natural pitched a fit, and they should have, to say, listen, you can't do this. You come out with this big report. You don't even give the industry that's affected by it the chance to counterpoint it and maybe point out that your studies are not really studies or they're from a review of studies that was done 14 years ago. You got nothing new in there, and this doesn't affect people in single-family homes. And I guess it's just beyond the capabilities of the Daily Dead Fish Wrapper and Therese Bottomley, who runs the paper to say maybe if it only affects kids in apartment buildings, we should point that out. And maybe the studies were actually studying the effect of poverty and not studying the effect of cooking on natural gas. Now, with that in in mind, let's go to a First Amendment Friday call. Naysayer Steve is on the line. Hey, Steve, welcome to the program. Glad you called. What do you and I disagree about today on this great First Amendment Friday? Hey, Lars. First of all, I am an unwavering fan of yours. I think you provide a valuable service, and you're one of the most consistent conservatives on the radio, so thank you for what you do. You're too uh, regarding generous. Regarding 2024, yep. um, I, uh, this is my first naysayer call, by the way, but, but uh, regarding 2024, our number one job and focus is to get these clowns out of office, and I, I really have strong concerns about Trump. He, he d- cannot talk to middle America or left-wing America. He has one way of speaking to people, and he speaks at people. If he can change that, and if his, 
If the people around him can teach him how to talk to Americans, I think we have a shot. He has wonderful policies. I love listening to him, but most Americans don't get him who hate him, and they never will. And that's my biggest concern about Donald Trump. Can I, can I cite a data point and just ask you to answer that? You've made the charge that he doesn't communicate well with middle America. I don't think Joe Biden communicates well with anybody, but we'll leave Joe Biden aside. Well, I agree. Okay. Yeah. But when it comes to Trump, if it is true, if your the- and since we're talking science and natural gas and all that, if your thesis is Donald Trump doesn't connect with middle America, is it true that Donald Trump as a sitting, every president who's done four years tries to get another four years, at least in recent memory. So Donald Trump ran for reelection. He got, as a sitting president, the greatest number of votes that any sitting president seeking re-election has ever received. And that includes Barack Obama, who got just, you know, accolades all day long from the mainstream media and all kinds of help from everybody else. Even he didn't get as many votes as Trump. So if it's true that Trump doesn't connect to Americans, how in the heck did he get the greatest number of votes any sitting president has ever received when he sought re-election? Back in a moment, it's First Amendment Friday. More of your calls on the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. In a prison over in Russia Is a druggie they won't set free She's a whiner, Brittany Griner. She should not get clemency. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. That is our great parody artist, uh, the great Jim Gossett. And this is the Lars Larson Show. And if you've been listening recently, I spent the last couple of months not talking about Brittany Griner. But lately, she's been getting a lot of sympathy. I don't have much sympathy for her. I've traveled to a few, only a few foreign countries. And when I do, I carefully make sure that I'm going to abide by their laws and regulations. Because apparently, like unlike Brittany Griner, I understand that when I travel overseas or to a foreign country, even if it's Mexico or Canada, I understand they have different rules. And I do not carry with me, I wish I could, my constitutional protections in the U.S., nor the protection of U.S. laws. Brittany Griner would like to get free. Instead, she got nine years in a Russian prison. And even though there are hundreds of other people in that same circumstance, she's getting an extraordinary amount of attention. So I thought we'd talk with Peter Van Buren, who's written about this. He's a former United States Foreign Service employee. That means you work uh, either with or or, uh, on behalf of the U.S. State Department. And he's the author most recently of Hooper's War, a novel of World War II Japan. Mr. Van Buren, it's a pleasure to have you on. Lars, thanks for having me. Now, I, I've told my audience some of the things you, you wrote about, because uh, if somebody brings up unique facts that are not being presented by the rest of the mainstream media, I'm glad to use them, but I always want to credit lavishly. It's not as though I had the experience that you had, but you made some great points about Brittany Griner's plight. Uh, I, I was right, wasn't I, that hundreds of American citizens are held in roughly the same circumstances as Ms. Griner, but they're not getting the attention she's getting. Is that fair to say? It's probably closer to thousands of American citizens. Uh, When I worked for the State Department, one of my jobs was to see to the welfare of Americans who had been arrested uh, abroad. And that didn't mean getting them out of jail. It didn't mean getting them reduced sentence. It meant that their health and, and, and safety and their diet was respected while they were incarcerated overseas. 
And it's probably closer to thousands of Americans who intentionally or sometimes unintentionally violate the host country laws and find themselves in jail. Unfortunately, we in the State Department are prohibited from getting them out of jail for trying to talk them free, if you will, with one exception. And that is if the Secretary of State himself designates them as wrongly detained. Now, other than Ms. Greiner, wrongly detained generally means hostage, generally means terrorism, it generally means that you are being taken as a political prisoner, say, in North Korea, not someone who tried to smuggle a little dope into, into Russia. Now, and by the way, Mr. Van Buren, just in the interest of full disclosure, I'm not a fan of marijuana. I didn't vote for its legalization, but I live in a state where it's legal. I accept that that's the law. Um, but there seems to be a lot of sympathy in the United States saying, well, all she had was pot. Well, you, you brought something up that I haven't seen anybody in the mainstream media uh, report, and that is, what happens to somebody who has a sandwich baggie? I think that's about an ounce of marijuana with them. Again, I'm not a fan of the drug, so I don't have an intimate knowledge of it. What happens to an American citizen who gets caught with a sandwich baggie full of pot in Japan? Well, if you get popped in Japan with a little more than an ounce, you are presumed by definition, by the law, presumed to be intending to sell it, and you are punished accordingly. It's generally three to five years uh, in a place like Japan for small amounts of marijuana. Thailand, uh, throughout the Asia, pretty much the same. Um, Western Europe is a little different, but Russia, I'm afraid, has very strict laws, and Americans are required to respect those laws, whether they play in the WNBA or not. And by the way, Ms. Greiner had traveled to Russia a number of times, So, uh, and I guess ignorance of the law is no excuse. Do you really think she truly accidentally packed those marijuana vape cartridges in her luggage? It's pretty hard to, to believe it was an accident. Number one, she made quite a, a big deal about talking about how they're part of her medical regime. B, marijuana is still illegal in the WNBA. If she packed those cartridges in her, in her luggage and took them to Indianapolis and used them and got a blood test, she would be ineligible to play in the game that she was there for in Indianapolis. So calling this an accident takes a real stretch. Uh, it gives her far less credit than I think a woman of her intelligence and background would have. I think she knew what she was doing. I'm talking to Peter Van Buren. He's written most recently, Hooper's War, a novel of World War II Japan, and he's a Foreign Service employee of about a quarter of a century's experience. Um, one of the other things I noticed is that there are folks who believe, well, but it's, it's a minor infraction. I got to tell you, Mr. Van Buren, I go, you know, I used to go to Canada every once in a while with my wife, maybe once a year or every couple of years. Mm -hmm. And I was aware certain pocket knives that I, that I carry here in the United States that are perfectly legal are not legal in Canada. I mean, even if it's a tiny, tiny thing like that, like what kind of pocket knife do you have in your pocket? I always have one in my pocket. Uh, you know, if you don't respect other people's laws, uh, then, then, then you shouldn't be traveling to their countries, should you? No, of course not. I mean, that's one of, the, one of the, the, the joys of travel is understanding that the world doesn't work like the United States and that people, even in countries that are familiar to us, don't enjoy the freedoms that we have here. It's a real eye-opener to realize, for example, that bringing religious materials into certain countries is against their laws, that bringing a, an innocent pocket knife can be a violation of their laws. Uh, Japan bans certain kinds of antihistamines, uh, inhalers, and things like that because they contain a, a, a controlled substance. You've got to educate yourself. And someone like, like Stephanie Greiner, who had access to the resources of the WNBA, 
clearly thought she was special, clearly thought that she deserved to be able to carry whatever she wanted into Russia. And when she got into trouble, she needed only to whine for help, and the United States would come running. Unfortunately, our current administration uh, seems to have listened to that whining and is going through extraordinary hoops to trade a known arms dealer, the so-called merchant of death, is one of the people they want to exchange prisoners with with Russia so that a female basketball center with a little bit of dope in her pocket somehow allows a man who actually put American citizen lives in the crosshairs with the weapons that he sold, that that's the equivalent. That tells you what you need to know about not only Stephanie Kreiner, but Joe Biden. Peter Van Buren is the, uh, it works, it also writes at The Spectator. One last thing, I have to give you props for having the courage to say the real three issues that make the Griner case so much of a cause celeb right now. And you, you said them right out loud in the piece you wrote in Spectator, didn't you? Well, it's hard to figure out what is wrongfully detained in this case, what that means, what makes Stephanie Griner special compared to the literally thousands of other Americans. You would hate to think it was simply because the Biden administration was currying to its black, lesbian, women athletes, married to women constituencies. But you're left with a lot of questions about, well, if it isn't that, what possibly could it be? Is Joe really a WNBA fan at that level? I don't think so. I think this is politics. I think it's wokeness. And I think it's woke politics combined in its very worst form. Peter Van Buren uh, writes uh, for The Spectator. He's also written most recently Hooper's War, a novel of World War II Japan. And he worked for 23 years as, uh, for the U.S. State Department, including visits to Americans in Japan locked up for the same kind of crime that Brittany Grind locked up for in Russia. Peter, thanks so much. I appreciate the time. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'll get back to your phone calls and emails shortly at 866-HEY-LARS. Email talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can vote in our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show and on my website as well. Like any homeowner who's been a homeowner for a long time, I've got uh, tools, I've got ladders, things like that. And in some ways, I get kind of a... Uh, a kick out of the fact that you read the warning labels. I mean, I think the average ladder you buy these days has about 50 different stickers on it that are all mandated by the lawyers who work for the ladder company because they have to say, don't stand on the, the top step. And uh, a lot of them just come off as stupid because you read them and to say, well, n nobody would do something like that. Well, clearly the lawyers think somebody out there might do something stupid with that product. So they have to put a label on it saying, we told them not to do it. But what happens and should a company be held liable when parents look at the warning label on a product that they bought and then use the product, in this case, involving an infant child, and then something bad happens? Do you hold the company liable when the parents ignore the warning labels? Oliver Dunford joins me now, who's an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. Oliver, welcome back to the program. And can we describe the case in point that you're talking about in this example? Yeah, thanks, Lars, for having me again. Um, yeah, we represent a company called Leachco. Uh, it's a small family business in Ada, Oklahoma. They make uh, a number of products, including uh, an infant lounger, uh, in which uh, parents can use to place their baby while they're um, folding laundry or, or something like that. The product comes with express warnings that says, uh, do not use for sleep, and an adult must always be supervising. Uh, and yet, 
uh, in this case, as, as you said, um, there were there were two incidents, but it had nothing to do with the product. It was because people ignored those instructions. Uh, in one case, a daycare center uh, violated state law, ignored the warnings, and left a baby uh, unattended for over an hour and a half, and the baby uh, unfortunately died. In another case, a parent was sharing a bed with a baby, which is also warned against, uh, and in the middle of the night rolled over and, and suffocated the baby. Uh, and so based on those two incidents alone, uh, the Consumer Product Safety Commission says that this product is defective, uh, even though they've sold 180,000 of these things, uh, and, and the defect, defect under the commission's own definitions is something that creates a substantial risk of injury. Uh, so and so uh, under any scenario, it, it, it's almost impossible to hold the, the company uh, liable here. So so this isn't just the courts and lawyers, because I, I can understand. Uh, uh, I haven't I mean, I've lost adults in my family. Uh, we haven't had the loss of a child, but I can't imagine the pain that comes with it. But if you're the person responsible, either the daycare center or in the case of the parent who rolls over on a child, which I've heard of before, we were very careful with my granddaughter when she was a little baby to make sure that everybody made sure you you set them up in a physical situation where you can't possibly roll over and and smother a baby. I, I know that parent wants to find somebody else made this happen and they want to blame somebody else. But should the government in the form of the Consumer Product Safety Commission be piling on? and saying, you're right, it's not the parents' fault for rolling over on the baby. It's these folks in, in Ada, Oklahoma, that, that made this defective device. Should the government be weighing in that way at all? Well, we don't think so. And, and there's not only is there a problem with the theory that they're um, claiming, but there's also a problem with the procedure. Um, traditionally, to hold someone liable for a, a defect in a product means that it had to be designed wrong or made wrong or the warnings were insufficient. But none of that applies here. And so the, the government has this theory that it is reasonably foreseeable that parents or other people will ignore the warnings, and therefore the company should be liable. But, and that's, a, that's a, a novel theory which would expand liability uh, dramatically. The other problem is that the commission here is not going to court. Instead, it filed an administrative action before, basically before itself. So the commission is made up of five commissioners. They voted to approve the administrative action. Then the commission staff has to prove its case to a commission-appointed administrative law judge. And then if there's an appeal, it goes right back to the commissioners. So there's, it, it, it's a done deal at this point because the commission will undoubtedly support its own ruling in this case. And, and I guess, let me go back to something else. I know that sometimes the law isn't always logical. But isn't there a logical contradiction if an agency says this was reasonably foreseeable by a parent, by a lay person, but we, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, did not foresee this outcome? Because they could have said at the beginning, we're not going to give approval for this because we could foresee the, you know, the danger. I mean, if you have a, a plastic bag and all plastic bags have little warnings on them saying, you know, don't put this over, the, over anybody's head, let alone a child's head, because you could reasonably foresee that putting a plastic bag over somebody's head might suffocate them. The Consumer Product Safety Commission didn't foresee this outcome, but then they're going to fault the manufacturer for not foreseeing what the Consumer Product Safety Commission itself didn't foresee? 
Well, and and the the bigger problem I think is that is that what wouldn't this apply to? There, there everything uh, can pose some danger if used improperly. Uh, and and again, take this this pillow, this lounging pillow. They've sold one hundred eighty thousand of them. And if you assume that each um, pillow was used only once, which is unreasonable because parents undoubtedly use them multiple times, but if they were used only once and there were two injuries here, that amounts to an injury rate of one one thousandth of a percent. And so if that is enough to create a substantial risk of injury, uh, then I'm not sure what the Consumer Product Safety Commission couldn't uh, try to recall. Well, and that 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 gets to the next question I wanted to ask you. This doesn't just affect this company called uh, Leachco, which is in Ada, Oklahoma. It actually affects everybody who makes any kind of infant product, and I assume it could go beyond that because I could foresee, yeah, you know, that, that my the screwdriver in my toolbox could be used to assault somebody or stab somebody, or I could stab myself in the eye with it, which is something I'm always aware of when I'm using screwdrivers and you know punches and things like that, which is why I wear safety glasses. But are you going to make all those companies say anytime something bad happens because somebody could imagine it happening that 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 the company is 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 to blame for this? Well, and the answer is who knows. The, the commission has a regulation. It says that there are many factors it considers, and it uh, it doesn't mention a screwdriver, but it does mention a knife. And it says that a knife has a sharp blade, but it needs to be sharp in order to work properly. And so, in that instance, the benefit outweighs the potential harm. But then, it, so it lists all these things, and, and among the considerations are whether the the product at issue is necessary and whether it's useful. And, and of course, the question is, well, necessary and useful to whom? Uh, and, and, and apparently the answer is that the commissioners, in their wisdom, and then it also says they can consider any other relevant factor, which means any other factor that they deem relevant. And so it's a, it's a completely arbitrary process on what they consider necessary and useful uh, and whether in their estimation the benefits of a product outweigh the harm. Okay, I'm talking to Oliver Dunford. He's an attorney with Pacific Legal, and I admire Pacific Legal. But tell me this. So if the Consumer Product Safety Commission can issue this ruling, and then if anybody appeals it, it comes right back to CPSC, is there any appeal beyond that that where you can go to some other body and say, by the way, tell the Consumer Product Safety Commission they're being ridiculous? Yes, there is. At the end of, the, end of that process, uh, you are allowed to appeal to a real court But in that case, the courts have to treat the factual record as found by the commission, and they often defer to the agency's legal rulings. So in effect, it's just a, as long as there wasn't a huge problem with what the commission did, as long as there's some evidence to support what what it did, uh, we're going to approve it. And so by that time, uh, you really don't get a a judicial review. You get kind of a a, mostly a rubber stamp. Um, So we, we sued in federal court. Uh, to stop the, the commission's administrative proceeding. And one of our arguments is is that our client has a due process right uh, to a court, to a trial before a judge and a jury. And if the commission has a case, it can prove it there. Yeah, absolutely right. Oliver, thank you very much. That's Oliver Dunford from Pacific Legal Foundation. We'll be back in a moment. 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. As I mentioned, companies like telephone carriers and railroads 
They're called common carriers, and that means they can't really censor or change the content of conversations or, you know, kind of uh, pick and choose the winners and losers when it comes to providing their service. But should social media companies like Facebook and Twitter fall under that same category, or should they continue to have the kind of protection that they get from the federal government? Giancarlo Canaparo joins me now, who's a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. This really cuts to the center of this issue, doesn't it, Giancarlo? Yes, it does. And thanks for having me, Lars. This is a big legal question these days about uh, social media. We're kind of on the forefront of a new cutting edge in the law uh, because you've got all these old cases and this old law that uh, interprets common carriers to make to be, you know, like you said, railways, uh, package and mail deliveries, telephone lines. Uh, but social media is new. And the question is, uh, are they common carriers within that old definition, uh, which means that they can't uh, discriminate against their clients? Well, and in fact, I guess it's kind of cockamamie to imagine this. But Giancarlo, what if telephone companies said, well, we know that there's a lot of criminal activity. I'm, I guarantee you there's a lot of criminal activity that is arranged by way of telephone. You know, and, and, and you, know, uh, you know, 50 years ago, you couldn't have said, well, we'll monitor everything that goes through our system and we'll sort out the stuff that we'll allow to go. Uh, the drug deals and the conspiracies and the murders that are being arranged by telephone, we're not going to let that happen because we're protecting people. I don't think a telephone company would even try to do something like that, even though technologically they could probably do it today. They could say, we're going to look for certain keywords. And when people start talking about bombs or guns or killing somebody or setting up a drug deal, uh, we'll simply interrupt those conversations. And yet the social media companies seem to have no problem doing it, except that their bias seems to fall in favor of the political left in America and against the conservatives in America. Am I wrong? No, that's exactly right. Uh, I I could sit here, we could sit here for hours and hours talking about uh, all of the evidence uh, of uh, censorship in that direction, Uh, but we don't have to do that. The the point is that um, censorship happens. It doesn't matter which way it goes. Uh, And the social media companies claim that they can do that because uh, they have a First Amendment right to censor what happens on their platforms. Um, Well, that's sort of the big debate. And there's a new opinion out of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, which said no, uh, claiming a right to censor flips the First Amendment on its head. And at least insofar as you hold yourself out to the general public as being open to the world, and at least insofar as you let other people speak on your platform and are not yourself speaking – Uh, You are a common carrier. Uh, You're just like a telephone company. You're just like a railroad, which says, you know, anyone who comes along gets to go along. Uh, You can't uh, pretend that these old precedents don't apply to you um, because you are just like a common carrier, just with new technology. So you don't get to discriminate. So uh, at least uh, that's the law right now because of Texas. Texas passed a law that said you can't discriminate social media companies if you want to operate in Texas. Of course, they do. Uh, And that law got upheld. Well, and Giancarlo, look, there aren't a lot of subjects that come right home to somebody like me. I mean, where they actually affect what I do on the air. But people would say, and and I can imagine somebody objecting, saying, well, Lars, you censor. You decide which callers to take and which not to take and which ones, you know, which guests 
to allow on, like Giancarlo Canaparo, and which guests to say no to. And believe me, we say to, yeah. no to a lot of them. And I say, yeah, but I'm a publisher. If I retain the, the right to censor and decide what I'm going to talk about and what will be allowed to be talked about on my show, and I do, then I also have the responsibility that as a publisher, if you were to say something defamatory and I didn't keep it off the air, I'm the one who gets the blame for that. So I have the latitude to censor, but with that comes the responsibility to say that if you know something goes on the air and I allow it on the air, even if I didn't say it, then I, I may get sued for libel. I may be sued for invasion of privacy, uh, you know, intentional infliction of emotional harm. There are lots of things they could come after me. You can't come after Facebook and Twitter for that. And I say, if they want to behave like a publisher, like a talk show, where you say, we decide what goes on our platform and what does not, then you get to, to behave like a publisher. And you have to, you know, unless you want to just say, we're a platform and we get special protection from the federal government because we don't censor. I don't think they have a legal right to censor. Do you? No, see, then, and you've hit on exactly the key point here. The difference between you and Twitter is that you are not open to the world. Your show is not open to the world. Uh, of course, it couldn't be. You've got limited time, and, uh, you know, you can only have one person on the air at a time. But Twitter, you just take a look at Twitter's About page, uh, and you'll see it says Twitter is an open service that's home to a world of diverse people, perspectives, ideas, and information. You can join Twitter without uh, paying for it. You can join Twitter. Uh, anyone and ha anyone and everyone can join Twitter. And if Twitter is going, and that of course is a benefit to Twitter, they want as many people on there as they possibly can get. Same goes with every other social media platform. But the trade-off is if you want to hold yourself out as open to the world, you need to be open to the world. Giancarlo, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for the time. My pleasure. You bet. That's Giancarlo Canaparo, who's a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. By the way, we might make that a Twitter poll question as well. I'm open to those. And if you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Pleasure to be with you. Always glad to get your phone calls and your emails. If you want to dial into the best conversation and talk journalism, 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And believe me, a lot of people say, well, whoever's answering this? No, I answer all my email. My email doesn't go to anybody but me. As much as I respect my producers, I do not farm out the answers to my email to somebody else. And if you want to vote in our Twitter poll, you can find that at Lars Larson Show and also on our website at LarsLarson.com. I want you to consider kind of a strange question, but I've got some data to back it up. What would the world look like if the COVID vaccines had simply not arrived at all? Now, I want you to think about that for a moment, and then I'm going to tell you this. There is data from an organization I don't entirely trust called the World Health Organization. Why? Because two years ago in January, they said there is no... Two years ago in January, January 2020, the WHO in the pocket of the Chinese Communist government in Beijing, said there is no sign that COVID spreads from human to human, that that kind of transmission doesn't happen. On the 14th of freaking January, while a lot of us were watching the disease spread through Wuhan, China, and we said, well, it's not spreading from human to human. Why are so many people in Wuhan getting it? And, of course, I anticipated, my wife and I anticipated, it because we were watching the reports from overseas. Uh, we said, it's coming here. 
I mean, there's no way in the world this does not escape China. The fact is, we could have had many fewer cases in the United States. But then again, that's water under the bridge. Donald Trump shutting down the airlines and being ridiculed by the left. Oh, he's scared of all this. No, he actually did something very, uh, very, very sensible on the about 17 days later on the 30th of January. But let's take you forward to today. From the World Health Organization in Haiti, which is a notoriously poor country, a country that has suffered from corruption, not just their own corruption, but the corruption of various non-governmental organizations and even the Clinton Foundation and Hillary and Bill themselves. I mean, Haiti has had uh, its share of tough breaks. They've had hurricanes, they've had earthquakes, but in Haiti, only 837 people have died since the pandemic began. Now you say, okay, that's sad, it's 800 lives. Why is that important? Do you know what the vaccination rate for this country of 11 and a half million, so they have a population bigger than many American states, smaller than a few others. I mean, California's, what, around 35 or 40 million, and here's Haiti at 11 million. And they've had 837 deaths. They have a vaccination rate of 1.4% percent. Holy cow. 98.6% of the population is not vaccinated. And yet a total of 837 deaths in Haiti from the 3rd of January, 2020 to the 7th of July of this year, there have been a grand total of 31,703 confirmed cases of COVID and 837 deaths. You know, that 30, 31,000 confirmed cases, that would have been a good number in many American states. And 837 deaths compared to a million people dying in the United States. As of the 24th of June, a total of 342,724 vaccine doses have been administered. In contrast to countries that vaccinated the majority of their population, Haiti has survived the impacts of COVID-19. Israel does not have a high rate of full vaccination. They're at 66%, but the country eagerly embraced all proposed boosters, four of them. Despite all that, Israel has seen one of the highest COVID-19 death rates on record this year. The number of coronavirus patients in serious condition in Israel hit 140 on Friday. That is nearly a 70% rise since last week. Now, Jim Hoft collects all this data. He's very good. We haven't talked to him on the show recently, but I want you to consider that it's really tough to argue with the numbers. And it makes you wonder if the vaccines had never arrived, if people had simply taken whatever precautions they could take, up your vitamin D intake, take uh, uh, a number of other uh, vitamins and supplements, and no vaccination at all. And remember, in Haiti, we're not talking about a, a population that has a high level of medical care available to it. We're not talking about a population that has easy access routinely to doctors or hospitals or anything else. We're not talking about a country that has a high level, let's say, of just sanitation, plain old, plain vanilla sanitation, toilets, running water, things like that. This is a country that has a gigantic number of problems, and yet somehow their total Total number of cases since the beginning of the pandemic, two and a half years ago, 31,703. Total number of deaths, 
800, just over 800. Meanwhile, Israel at 66% vaccination has had a much higher rate of both death and total cases. Now, I want you to add to that another data point that came to us this week, and that is about about kids. Because last week, the Biden administration was practically beside itself, saying we have to get the vaccines into little kids ages six months to five years. And, I mean, excuse me for, for being a bit cynical about this. Is this about getting the vaccine companies to get paid for the vaccine they made? Because, you know, we've talked on this show before about the fact that a great many doses of vaccine have ended up being wasted. We actually ran some sound from one of the big vaccine makers, uh, the CEO of the company, complaining at a conference that they were having to throw out 20 or 30 million doses of vaccine because they couldn't find anybody who wanted to take it and administer it. Well, children under the age of five are getting vaccinated against COVID-19 at a slower rate than all other age groups. Now, I suspect this is because a lot of parents have said, my child is not exposed to a lot of people or places where my child could end up getting COVID. The chance of my child getting COVID is very low. The chance of it having any really bad effects on your child is very low. Consider this, that when the Biden administration finally got the FDA to say, okay, we'll okay the vaccine for kids from ages six months to five years. Do you know how many have taken the vaccine? About 2%. This is in the United States, 2%. Now for kids ages five to 11, 15% of the kids ages 5 to 11 had received the vaccine in the first three weeks after it was authorized. I just want you to consider that this suggests not only a gigantic distrust by parents, but perhaps parents who are making a sensible decision. The vaccine comes with risks. So does catching COVID. You weigh the risks and you make the best decision for your kids. That's sensible. Pleasure to be with you. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's easy. 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can vote in our Twitter poll, at Lars Larson Show. Or you can go to my website. The vote counts the same at LarsLarson.com. And you can send an email to talk at LarsLarson.com. If you want to join the best conversation, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Naysayers go first. First. And in a moment, I want to talk to Bob Barr about credit card companies that are adding a special code not to identify gun purchases, but any purchase made at a store that sells guns. Uh, Bob, welcome back to the program, by the way. Well, thank you. Always great to be with you. And I particularly like the topic you want to touch on this evening. because It's very, very important, not just for firearms owners and uh, retailers, but to all Americans who cherish their privacy. I agree with you. Can I ask you about one thing first, though, Bob? Because I'm just I'm just having a fun time watching the meltdown in Martha's Vineyard, which is I've never been there myself. I'm, I understand it's a very nice place. Uh, is populated by millionaires and billionaires and pre- President Obama and a bunch of other people who can afford fourteen million dollars for a house. And now they're melting down because Ron DeSantis shipped them uh, forty eight illegal aliens from the mass of illegal aliens that are currently crossing America's border because of Joe Biden, who I would imagine a huge number of people on Martha's Vineyard voted for? Well, I tell you, every once in a while in this crazy world of ours uh, in which we have all sorts of problems that seem to be getting worse rather than better, 
every once in a while, something happens that you just got to sit back and laugh at. Uh, and what DeSantis uh, has done is just it's precious. It's absolutely hilarious what he's doing. And the uh, Democrats up there in Martha's Vineyard are having what uh, they call in some places conniption fits. Yeah, they are. And what I found even funnier, somebody posted a sign from the front of one of the stores. I can imagine what the stores in Martha's Vineyard are like, you know, where you can pay amazing amounts of money for food or anything else you want to buy there. It says all immigrants are welcome here. Hate has no business here. And, you know, all this other, uh, you know, liberal nonsense uh, until it actually comes to their doorstep, at which point they say, you can't send those people here. They're supposed to go somewhere else in America. We're a special place here and i think they're being hoist by their own petard <laughs> they they are that's another great expression that really describes perfectly what's happening up there it's absolutely hilarious and i give ron DeSantis a tremendous credit for it and governor abbott in uh, texas for sending uh, sending a bunch of uh, the illegals to uh, kamala harris's doorstep this morning as well i absolutely loved it in fact that's what i started with let's talk about this attack on Second Amendment rights of Americans, because now we have the three major credit card vendors in America, that's Amex, MasterCard, and Visa, that all say they will identify with a special code purchases made at a gun store, and it doesn't even have to be a gun or ammunition, and that somehow they will look for suspicious purchases, which I don't know how you define that. I was at the gun store last weekend. I bought some ammunition. I bought some guns. I also bought a pocket knife. You know, how in the world are they going to tell what is a suspicious purchase? Uh, they are not going to be able to, but that's the next step. But even if they don't, even if they leave this uh, merchant code the way it is, uh, it presents problems not only domestically for us here, but internationally as well. You look, Lars, at all these uh, U.N. organizations that are going after and trying to figure out ways to go after firearms internationally, and they will love this, uh, this trove of information. And the more purchases that they see that they can consider to be firearms related, the better, because it justifies all of these restrictive measures that they're putting in place internationally. So it's a problem not only here at home, but internationally as well. Well, I'm, I'll tell you a personal piece of business, Bob. Uh, I'm constrained by state laws that now require transfers and everything else. But in years gone by, I would walk in and buy half a dozen handguns or half a dozen rifles, and I would gift them to people at Christmas time. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. But, but literally, if they say, well, this guy's he must be crazy. He just bought six guns. Well, they don't know why I'm buying them. And, and I'm, I want to ask you a legal question, though. Because, Bob, I've had prosecutors tell me this, prosecutors who are friends of mine. I've said, if you're prohibited from doing something, can you get a citizen to do it for you? You know, so if you can't, say, record a conversation because you need a warrant if you're the government. But if a private citizen does it and then hands over the recording, if they're doing it at the behest of that government agency, then they're they're acting as an agent of that government agency and doing something the government agency itself is not allowed to do. Aren't these credit card companies running the risk of running afoul of that, of acting as the government's agents? 
Well, of course, uh, if in fact uh, the government, uh, the federal government, we're talking primarily about federal laws here, but uh, state laws as well, but uh, where you have the government acting in concert with companies, for example, several years ago, the FBI went to uh, Best Buy, I think it was, uh, and said, hey, you know, you're, uh, you're people that you send out to install and repair video equipment and people's homes, we'd like to know what they're doing and what sort of uh, electronics they're, 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 uh, they're implementing. Uh, and you're right, that is, uh, they are acting as agents of the government. Uh, in this case, the problem is really the government cannot go out and gather this information directly but if companies do it, credit card companies do it, and then they share the information with government, that is circumventing laws against government gathering this information. It's a very nefarious deal that they're putting together here. So, and you'd be able to fight that once you've already had your privacy invaded, once they've already done the dirty deed, but can we do it prospectively and say the government cannot be involved in this kind of information gathering about private citizens? Congress could, if, uh, and this is something that I, that I kind of wrote a little bit about, you may recall something called Operation Choke Point, uh, seven or uh, six or seven years ago, in which the Obama administration tried to stop banks, banks. from dealing yep. with, uh, f- with uh, firearms retailers. The Republicans who had control of the Congress at the time did stop it. Congress can do that, but we're going to have to have a majority that actually believes not only in the Second Amendment, but that will not condone government conspiring with businesses to circumvent the Fourth Amendment, for example. I just wonder if they're not opening up an opportunity. And frankly, Bob, this is where I wish a few of the conservative billionaires out there. uh, I'm not talking about the Koch brothers. I don't think they're that conservative. But if some billionaires got together and said, hey, you know what? They've just opened up an opportunity. We can go to Americans and say, would you like to be able to make purchases on a credit card, uh, you know, without and know that your security is is sacrosanct? Uh, they could probably steal a big chunk of business from all three of those companies because all three of them are doing this seemingly in concert because they all announce the moves at about the same time. You think I'm right? Uh, you're absolutely right, but the finding Republican or conservative companies that will do that and actually get together and do it is hard. Republicans uh, go off in all different directions. Democrats, on the other hand, they conspire, they get together, and they will act jointly and together. Republicans don't have a history of doing that, nor do Republican or conservative corporations. See, and that's the thing, because wouldn't it be wild if all three of these companies say, we're going to poke conservatives right in the eye? Fine. Create a company that makes a credit card. I imagine trying to bust into the credit card business is probably pretty tough. Except that if you've got an in like this and say to Americans, we'll protect your purchases. Oh, and by the way, we're going to go out to all the retailers out there who consider themselves conservative. And they can say, we'll take this card in preference to the other cards. And you could send a message through the private sector. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Naysayers always go first at 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. Mike Gonzalez is our friend, a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation, author most recently of his book, BLM, The Making of a New Marxist Revolution. Mike, good to have you back. 
Uh, Lars, it's always a pleasure to be on with you. Now, I know that there are times in politics when there's an attempt to rehabilitate somebody's image, you know, and and sometimes that works out very well and sometimes it doesn't work out all that well at all. But are the communists here in the United States trying to sort of shine up the image of Nicolas Maduro by making showing that he's perhaps woke to try to make him look a little more friendly as Joe Biden begs him for some more oil from Venezuela? Yeah, that's what I think it's happening, exactly that, the Democratic Socialists of America. First of all, American socialists, our growing numbers of American Marxists have always been very kind to Maduro. You know, uh, Oliver Stone and uh, Michael Moore and, and, uh, and, and uh, Sean Penn have always uh, gone to Caracas uh, to praise the great uh, Bolivarian uh, revolution, which obviously is nothing of the sort. It's just it's turned... A, a, a good economy into into a basket case and has cost uh, millions to immigrate but but what what is is new is this turn by Maduro to appear woke to to after years of homophobic statements uh, they're now pressing for LGBTQ uh, uh, issues they're painting the bike paths in Caracas the, the the colors of the of the rainbow flag. Uh, they're, they're, they have a, a tour uh, of Venezuelan women here in America saying that our sanctions against Maduro are hitting women the worst uh, of all. And that coincides with a visit last uh, July to Caracas by a delegation of, of the Democratic Socialists of America, who and, and Code Pink is very involved in this as well. And, and, you know, it doesn't take a genius to put two and two together, especially when you, when you see how involved the Democratic Socialists of America are in social media promoting all of these things I have just described. Maduro's new woke image is being uh, very much promoted by the DSA. Uh, so, so, so there's two things here. One, American Marxists have always supported the Marxists in Caracas because they're both Marxists. Uh, but the new one is that the it's clear the Democratic Socialists of America are saying, look, you got to say the right things uh, to attract the Harris, the Kamala Harris crowd. Their argument is that a country that could be very wealthy because of its oil rich in nature was, but they but was, they don't pump. Go ahead. No, I said a country that was in fact very wealthy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just saying they were wealthy. Uh, but like most socialist regimes, they ran the oil industry into the ground. I mean, they took control of it, and then instead of actually reinvesting some of what they made in it, they just let it d- decline in production because as long as the elites were getting enough money, enough fuel, enough money, and enough everything else, they could let the whole thing decline and just put all the money into their own you know, causes and, and uh, the elites who make a lot of money. And if the common person suffered, but then it's our problem because we put sanctions on an evil regime like Maduro, not his problem because he's he's effectively ignoring most of the country's oil wealth and, and not pumping it out and selling it uh, to the benefit of the Venezuelan people. Uh, right. And that is just a continuation of the blame America first uh, strategy which are left always are left to things that were very really powerful. In fact, the left to things that were powerful than the, than the right things. Uh, we're we're so powerful than uh, that our sanctions cause all these uh, uh, all of this mayhem in the world. Uh, no, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't. Really, you have to be a top a top shelf analyst to understand that socialism has produced poverty everywhere. It produces bread lines. It doesn't produce bread. Uh, so, so that's what has happened to Venezuela. 
It's nothing to do with with our, our sanctions. Our sanctions are hurting Maduro and his his relatives, and and our government, the, the, the Biden administration, very misguidedly has lifted sanctions on Maduro's family, which should be in place because these are people who are, this is a narco terrorist regime. So this approach has not led anywhere good. Uh, but 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 I, I think what is I think what the Democratic Socialists of America want to do is attract it make make the Maduro government even more attractive to the Harris Biden people. Well, and Mike, I'm talking to Mike Gonzalez, who's at Heritage, but his new book is called BLM, The Making of a New Marxist Revolution. So on one hand, you've got Joe Biden saying, I'm going to sanction not just Putin and oligarchs, but I'm even going to sanction Putin's daughters, you know, who who I don't think there's any argument that says that somehow sanctioning his daughters is going to bring about a change in policy about Ukraine. So it's okay to do that to aim at, at two young ladies, uh, that, that you're going to sanction them and, and hurt them. But it's not okay to sanction, uh, you know, Maduro's family. So so I, I, real, I tell my audience that if the Democrats didn't have double standards, they'd have no standards at all. But that one really <laughs> doesn't make sense because it's happening all, you know, right in front of us. You say, okay, sanction Putin's daughters, don't sanction Maduro's family. How does that make sense? See, it doesn't. I'm a lot more consistent than that. I am for sanctioning Maduro's family, and I am for sanctioning Putin's family. I think that this approach is not bad necessarily, uh, but lifting sanctions on Maduro's family at this juncture is just plain old stupid. Uh, are they going to be able to uh, shine up his image enough to make it okay for Joe to go hat in hand to Maduro and say, hey, please pump more oil? Not because we actually want more oil, because we're actually greenies. We hate oil, and we're trying to kill America's oil industry. But we'd like the the Venezuelan oil industry to do well enough to get us past the November elections, because five dollars, six dollars gas is not doing us any favors. Well, all of that I think is 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 the complete truth. If you put together all the elements you just brought up, I think that's the truth. I don't think Biden himself is is green. I think Biden doesn't really know what he is at this point, but I think Biden understands or is being told, look, you must do this, whether it's by Susan Rice or by, by, by Klain or by anyone, by, any, by, by other people in the White House. He is being told there's no way you can uh, allow Americans to drill for oil. Uh, we have, obviously, we need more supply of oil because if the price is through the roof, you're going to pay a political price for this. So the supply has to come from somewhere. So let's make it come from Venezuela. Obviously, this is the height of hypocrisy, uh, but but this is what politics, uh, uh, what he thinks is political expedient at the moment. Well, Mike, one last issue, and that is: Has Joe kind of sh- Joe Biden shifted his his comments a little bit to say, "Hey, these high prices not all that bad. They're actually going to help us make a transition." Because it seems that they've. They've started to change a little bit of that language. A year ago, he's saying, oh, don't worry, the oil prices are only high for a little while. It's transitory. And now he's apparently saying, well, I guess they're okay because they help us push Americans where we want them to go. Is, is the whole administration yeah. going to try and tell people uh, high oil and gas prices are a good thing? Like, you know, the, the old joke about telling somebody it's raining when they're actually uh, doing something on their leg? <laughs> you know, I've, so far, I've only seen Biden do it. And I'm, I must say that I'm baffled. I'm completely baffled that he's taking this approach. The, 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 the high price of gas is hurting a lot of people. I would argue that the Biden's policies have in, inflicted a great deal of pain across the board on all Americans. But the, the price, this is something you feel 
once or twice a week. And it really is a shock and for him to go out and say, this is a transition. This is going to help us transition to a Greek future, to a green future. This really, and, and I've only seen him do it. I haven't seen other people do it. Maybe, maybe those around him think there's no way he's running in 2024. And nobody can stand him anymore. Even even people who voted for him can't stand the side of him. Might as well have him say this since he's already damaged goods uh, and see how the message plays out. He can he can pass he can take the damage because he's already damaged goods. That's Mike Gonzalez from Heritage BLM, the making of a new Marxist revolution. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to take your phone calls and emails. We'll get to those in just a moment. But we've been talking quite a bit about Joe Biden's crazy student loan forgiveness plan. The low point on that price tag is around $200 billion. The upper end of it may be as much as a trillion. Absolutely nobody seems to know exactly how much it may cost. It does seem that most people don't disagree. It's probably illegal. Because the President of the United States does not have, on his own, the authority to spend dime one without the Congress approving it. And Joe Biden used the HEROES Act and argued that somehow we're in a national emergency and that the law passed a couple of years after the 9-11 terrorist attacks while we were at war in the Middle East has something to do with a pandemic that even Joe Biden has declared over. So I thought I'd get Preston Cooper on. He's a scholar with the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Uh, Mr. Cooper, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. Or should I be calling you Dr. Cooper? I'm sorry. I don't want to cheat you out of your title. <laughs> no, Mr. Cooper is fine, or even Preston. I prefer it. <laughs> All right, Preston, tell me this. How much is this thing going to cost, and why are we so unsure about exactly what the price tag is? Well, so the Congressional Budget Office came out with a score uh, earlier this week that says the loan forgiveness is going to cost about $400 billion. So that's about $1,200 for every man, woman, chi- woman and child in the United States. But that's not even the half of it, likely, because the uh, CBO's score did not take into account some of the other components of this loan forgiveness package that uh, President Biden pushed through by executive fiat, because President Biden says, uh, you know, loan payments going forward for people who still have debt are going to be cut by half or more. He says that the repayment pause is going to be extended towards the end of the year. And we still don't know how this is going to affect borrowing and repayment decisions going forward. If you think you might get your loans forgiven, why not take out a bigger loan in the future? If we add all those costs up, it's quite likely that the total cost will be north of a trillion dollars. North of a trillion dollars. And and by the way, as I understand it, one of the parts that, and I've only seen a couple of places report on it, we mentioned it, but they said the biggest part of the forgiveness is not the man or woman who had 10 or 20, 10 or 20,000 in debt and it gets forgiven, assuming that survives the court challenge. But as I understand it, if you're somebody who's in the, this process where they pause the payments and pause the accrual of interest, if you're, say, a doctor, uh, or a lawyer, and you've got $300,000 in student loan debt, and that's paused for a period of time, and the interest does not accumulate during that time, the benefit to doctors and lawyers, the, the, you know, the upper end of the income scale, could be forty dollars or $50,000 or $60,000. They're getting much more forgiveness than the young man or woman who may have dropped out of community college just trying to get some, you know, some double-A degree. That's correct. You know, uh, the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget kind of crunched the numbers on this, and they estimated that solely because of the payment pause and the suspension of interest and the fact that we've had inflation that is is going to erode your real balance, 
a doctor is going to get about $50,000 of student de- uh, debt forgiveness. A lawyer is going to get about $30,000 of student debt forgiveness. So those folks, you know, because of the Biden administration's policies, they're getting even more forgiveness than the 20000 you know, on top of the 20000 <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's really the ten or 20000 that you read about in the news, that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, but yeah, and I can see a political component to that because I know that politicians know where a lot of their campaign dollars come from. They come from well-heeled people and their families who write checks to politicians. So if they're you know if they're handing out to a doctor, a lawyer, man or woman, you know that kind of forgiveness, and they may have uh, you know wealthier, affluent moms and dads. Uh, they're going to be very grateful for that, and I would imagine they might even write some checks. Uh, to fund campaigns because they'll say, hey, this is the president, you know, who gave our son or daughter a $50,000 benefit. That's worth a couple of thousand in a campaign donation, isn't it? I think that's right. You know, I think this is a pretty transparent, you know, vote buying initiative. So only about 13 percent of the adult American population even has student debt. But we need to look at where those people are concentrated. You know, they tend to be concentrated in urban areas, you know, blue states, you know, Places that uh, uh, President Biden's party is going to need to win in the midterm elections if they want to keep if they want to keep Congress. But, you know, the people who are getting the benefit from that uh, are very different from the people who are going to pay the cost. You know, CRFB estimates that inflation might go up by about 0.3 percentage points. It doesn't sound like much, but that's hundreds of dollars per year for the typical American family. And that's going to be a boost in inflation that's going to be with us for, for years, if not decades. So, you know, we really need to look at who is benefiting from this and who is paying the price. Well, because ordinarily, I just so people can understand, you can, correct me if I'm wrong on this. If you tell somebody who's got substantial student debts, uh, those are frozen for right now. The interest is frozen. There's no point in you even paying for them. Then that man or woman may say, well, that gives me I was going to have to pay five hundred dollars a month on my student debt. Now I don't have to pay that and I'm not accruing interest. So that gives me another five hundred dollars a month that I can spend on something else. You know, whether it's good times or putting it in savings or paying down other bills. But the money it gets out into the economy because you say, I've got an extra five hundred dollars. I think I'll take that weekend trip. That'll pay for that. And that goes right into the economy and pushes inflation, doesn't it? That's exactly right. You know, with the economy at capacity right now, we've got eight or nine percent inflation. We've got lots of job openings. You know, uh, production is not able to keep up with demand. If you suddenly put four hundred billion dollars into the economy, that's not going to just encourage more production. That's just going to go right into inflation, you know, and it's everybody else, everybody who's not getting the loan forgiveness who is going to be paying those higher prices, which is the price of this, you know, forgiveness initiative. I'm talking to Preston Cooper, who's with the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails. Now, I know that uh, usually my friend Brian Westbrook, who's our tech guy, when you go to brianwestbrook.com, you don't normally uh, object too strongly when I spring a surprise topic on you, do you? (laughs) Not always, Lars. It depends on the topic. Well, I got two great ones. One, we had asked you to talk about how China's TikTok app is leaking so much data, and the FCC has literally walked in and said to the phone companies, uh, take it off your app stores. Before we get to that, though, have you heard about the mystery rocket on the moon? No, I've not heard about the mystery rocket on the moon. What's happening? This just Oh, this is where there was a rocket launch. There was a crater, yeah, they found? 
Well, yeah, and, and and believe it or not, this isn't coming from some crazy website. It's coming from the Houston Chronicle, which is kind of a sure, you know, yeah. old, old school newspaper. And yeah. they said NASA has discovered and they've confirmed it the crash site of a mystery rocket body. And apparently NASA got on the horn with all the other, you know, space traveling nations on Earth because there are a bunch of them that launch things <laughs> yeah. and say, hey, is it yours? And they said, no, it's not ours. Is it yours? <laughs> and and nobody knows where it came from. Now, wh- what should we make of that? Well, I got to ask this question. If everybody is saying no, then where did it come from? Also, I haven't read. I just saw the headline earlier, Lars. I, I haven't really dug into the story too deeply. But my first question would be, do we know that it's actually a rocket crash site? Like, is that does it look like one or how do we how do we know well, that that's actually what that is? Have, have you, you know, over the years, you remember when they had the Cuban Missile Crisis and they had pictures that were not great pictures, sure. even by today's standards. And they say, you see this, Mr. President? These are silos and these are fueling trucks, you know, and and you're looking, it looks like dots, you know, dots on the ground to me. Um, Apparently they can tell and they even say it it looks as though it's heavy at both ends. They said usually if there's a crash rocket, the, the one end is the fuel tank, which is empty, which is light. And the other end is the motors, which is heavy. And this has two heavy ends. So I'm wondering if at one end there's a crew capsule or something. But uh, apparently, then then it gets even crazier. They said astronomers have had their uh, had their eyes on a rocket that was headed for the moon. And, uh, and they didn't know whose it is. And this was back in March. And they said, we know that yeah. because of gravity and everything, it's going to end up on the moon. And they didn't know what it was, even when it was still flying through space. So it's kind of strange. But NASA has confirmed it. They found a, a rocket impact site on the moon. And maybe NASA, over the years, has crashed enough rockets that they know what a <laughs> rocket crash. Well, they have. Remember when they used to blow up on the pad yeah. all the time in the, yeah. you know, the 50s? Yeah. Um, well, they've crashed enough rockets. They know what a rocket crash looks like. Well, and I will also say, Lars, it's entirely possible, and I think you'll agree with this, that the right hand may not know what the left hand is doing. It very easily could be our rocket. We just lost track of it and ended up on the moon, and here we are. Apparently, the uh, rocket crash occurred on March 4th, and yep. it was uh, spotted by the reconnaissance observer. That's uh, that's something. I think we're going to have to keep an eye on that. I Hopefully, somebody is following up on that to find out. <laughs> Can we actually find out where this rocket came from and how it ended up on the moon? Well, because apparently Apollo's 13, 14, 15, and 17 have all left rocket bodies that then crashed, and they said, okay, that's what a rocket crash yeah. looks like. So I guess when they disconnect and, and have the crew capsule and you know, the service module and all that. Anyway, let's get back to TikTok for a moment. We'll, when we find out more about the mystery rocket on the moon, we'll let you know. The FCC has literally stepped in and said to the major phone providers, take TikTok off your app store. Tell me what you know. Well, I just want a quick clarification. They've they've gone to the app store providers, so not the phone providers, okay. just a clarification there. Not the T-Mobiles, the Verizon, the AT&Ts of the world, but the Apple and the Googles. The idea here is the FCC, Brendan Carr, has weighed in and said, this is some pretty scary information, and we have to thank our friends at BuzzFeed for doing some undercover research. This is really where journalism uh, earns its stripes because they've talked to TikTok uh, admins and officials and employees in the U.S that are saying, and this is a, you got to follow this logic closely, the employees in the U.S. are saying that they do not have the access to the data nor the wherewithal of how the data flows of U.S. users using TikTok. Now, why is that important? Because the TikTok CEO swore in front of Congress, okay, Michael Beckerman, an executive, and not the CEO, an executive, said TikTok collects less than our peers, was his excuse, 
and specified that U.S.-based data of U.S.-based customers is stored on, get it, U.S. servers. Now, that's all fine and good, but if you need to go to China to get the key to unlock it, it may not matter where the data is stored. If you can't look at it and they can, does it really matter where the data is stored? So if you accept this executive's words at face value, which I obviously we want to question that as well, then it doesn't matter because if China holds the key and they can look into the data, whoa, this is yeah, a big deal. And I think one of the things you and say, I have I talked Brendan about Cars. before yeah, is, is when, when companies do business physically in China and China says, sure. well, you have to st- store your data yeah. so we can access it. And they say, well, yeah. that's going to be a PR problem back at home. So China says, fine, we'll set up a separate company, a private company in China yep. that's subject to the Chinese government, store it with them. Then you can tell everybody back at home, we're not giving anything to the Chinese government. You know, we're, but, but what they are doing is storing the data in such a way that a Chinese company can give it to the Chinese government. So it's just a, it's a rhetorical workaround. It is kind of a rhetorical workaround. If these allegations are to believe, if this investigation is to find its way to be truth. And while I don't necessarily always agree with FCC Commissioner Carr, uh, he has a history with the FCC. He knows telecommunications. He happens to be a Republican, but he is very wise to sound the alarm around privacy because for you and I, Lars, and I don't use TikTok, and I doubt you have it on your phone either, either for a lot of these nope. same reasons. And I frankly, honestly... You'll never hear me say, delete this app. You'll never hear me say, you should not use this. Usually my words go something like this. Think strongly about it. Read the privacy (laughs) policy. Be careful. I'm going to make a one-time exception, Lars. Just delete TikTok. I highly doubt you're getting enough value out of TikTok to really be uh, putting your, your personal data, your tracking information who knows what access that, that phone app has uh, that you're releasing to not even the Chinese government, but if they can't keep their data in-house secure and, and figure out how to manage it in-house, I don't, want, I don't want any of that. I don't want anything to do with it. I, I guess I'm wondering, can you give my audience some idea of what they might do with this data? Think about everything that your phone can do, and I'm going to explain this in, in a way and build it up a little bit. Think sure. about everything your phone can do. It can take pictures. It can track your location. It has phones. It has your personal data. It has your banking information on it. And then when you install an app, it asks for certain permission. Now, Google and Apple both do a great job of making sure that the apps only have permission to do what they need to do. However, as soon as you turn your camera, your location, and your microphone on, the sky's the limit. The potential sky is the limit for the amount of data that can potentially, I have to say that carefully, potentially be collected. So if you, uh, if you say that TikTok has unfettered access because you wanted to record that quick selfie video or you wanted to make that note or you wanted to send a text, that then potentially could be abused to the point where they could collect information about your whereabouts, check your camera, check your microphone at any given time. If you're, wow. if you're installing an app wow. like TikTok, if you're installing any app and you're not carefully reviewing what permissions the phone has granted that app. you got a problem. That's Brian Westbrook from brianwestbrook.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. We know that communism almost inevitably, I think always inevitably, leads to poverty for most people and a few lucky elites at the top of the pile. And South America appears to be headed in that direction, including some very notable countries. I thought we'd talk about that with our friend Frank Gaffney, the founder of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C. Frank, welcome back. Lars, it's good to be with you always. 
So would you mind sketching out for my audience the situation we're up against? Because I thought there was a point during Reagan when we actually had communism pushed back the other direction. But now now the whole place, the whole continent seems to be headed the wrong direction. And then and then after that, they head north and come to the United States, where we seem to be turning both socialist or communist or a little bit of both. Yeah, it's a pretty grim prospect, isn't it? Um, I, as it happens, I was uh, addressing a group of Latin American uh, leadership types today and happened to remark uh, that it was uh, Ronald Reagan that was, I think, our last president who really gave focused attention to the continent to ourselves, And we have engaged in a kind of malign neglect, not just benign, malign neglect, uh, particularly under recent presidents. And uh, I think Donald Trump, you know, made some efforts to rectify that, but not enough. And uh, the cumulative effect of it, Lars, is uh, lost in the space of the past year, three critically important South American countries to communists, uh, the nation of Peru, the nation of Chile, and then just this week, the nation of Colombia. And next in store, alas, it seems, is the nation of Brazil. And if we've watched the same thing play out here, where, um, you know, there's a uh, an old story about communist elections. It's one man, one vote, one time. Um, you get uh, you get somebody elected, all right, but they are never going to relinquish power, and they're going to make sure that everybody else suffers terribly. As you said, you know, you may if you're part of the the small elite, the party, uh, you might benefit uh, at least somewhat, but uh, everybody else is is really suffering, and the country as a whole. I think is going to be um, suffering, uh, not just the ones that I've mentioned, but others besides, as something called the Forum of San Paulo, which is a kind of uh, contemporary communist international, um, serves to not only encourage this kind of uh, repression in the country's of our hemisphere, but facilitates the uh, efforts of the Chinese Communist Party, um, the Russians, and the Iranians to become ever more present in and uh, and domineering of uh, the nations of this uh, this region. So it's going to be affecting us, and not least, as you said, Lars, and I know you're very alive to this, as those people suffer, more and more and more of them will vote with their feet, as they say, leave these countries and head here. And that's a problem that's already acute enough, as you know so well. Well, but Frank, how can they sell the idea that socialism or communism is attractive when they've got right on their own continent? We've got Venezuela that is, that is uh, you know, went from one of the richest countries in the world to one of the poorest countries, a place of abject misery, and you say, "Hey, how would you like how would you like your country to be run that way?" And I would think that almost anybody who saw it, you know, whether you're rich or poor, would say, "No, we don't want to go that direction." Well, you'd certainly think so, especially in those countries like Peru uh, and like Colombia, 
which have huge numbers of Venezuelan emigres who have fled there to try to, you know, make ends meet to to survive. And it's it is unbelievable. And the only thing I can say is, Lars, um, how many times have we been sold uh, the hope and change bilge? Uh, of the Barack Obamas and, and more recently the Joe Bidens. Um, and I think there's an awful lot of that going on. The people who are disgruntled, who feel as though the, the system hasn't been fair to them, uh, are uh, endlessly, uh, you know, susceptible to the temptation that uh, uh, something different is going to be better for them. And even if it looks as though there's uh, – a lot of bad things associated with it, they they will nonetheless uh, vote for it. And I think you add on top of that, in, in many of these countries at least, uh, a, a level of corruption and, uh, uh, you know, fraud in the electoral process. And it, it isn't necessarily that people have actually bought what they're selling. It's that they've been, uh, you know, uh, induced to uh, go along with the program you mean you mean that there are vote counting machines that vote counting machines in south america that may not be entirely kosher i've been told that there are actually some vote counting machines in our own country that may be not entirely kosher and some of them are the same uh, machines to be that 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 was the coincidence i was but i I just you know when when (laughs) you look at there I don't. I don't expect that every you know average person in Venezuela is going to be converted. But that country could be rich again, as I understand their oil revenues and the way they've run their industry into the ground. They said, "Hey, we're going to take it over from all those evil companies that are ripping you off." The the country nationalizes its oil system, and all they do is run the entire plant and equipment into the ground to where it can't produce the wealth it once produced, even though they've got the oil. And with Joe Biden, they've certainly got a customer. Yeah, uh, they do. And, and uh, you know, a lot of the world would be at their feet uh, trying to get access to that oil. They can't get it out of the ground because they've done so much damage, as you say, to their industrial plant and base. But the Chinese own a lot of it now, um, having bought it forward at a very steep discount um, and uh, are otherwise, again, exerting their influence in ways that are in- entirely inimical to our interests, Lars. You know, we've got, as you know, commercial interests there. We've got tourism. Uh, we've got people, Americans, who have uh, settled throughout the hemisphere. But we've also got very important security interests. So let me just give you one example. This sure. uh, uh, country, Peru, has now got not one but two very large ports that are um, in various stages of construction now by the Chinese Communist Party. It is expected that at least one, maybe both of them, will support the kind of carrier battle groups that the Chinese are now building uh, in quantity and will be deploying, you can bet, to advance their efforts to project power, to dominate this region, and to deny it to us. None of this is good, either for the people here or for our vital security interests. Including the supercarrier that the Chinese just finished launching. Frank, keep up the good work at the uh, Center for Security Policy. We appreciate it. Will do, my friend. Thank you. That is Frank Gaffney with us. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Emails talk at LarsLarson.com. Does the current nationwide shortage of infant formula have you asking what's next? 
Did you know that nearly 100% of America's supply of antibiotics is produced outside the United States, mainly in China and India? And if we can't control our own domestically produced baby formula, what about the life-saving medications produced overseas? You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. With the rise of Disney Plus and a flood of other streaming services, Netflix was expected to announce some major losses and maybe even close its doors. But is the damage really that bad? I thought we'd put that question to our friend Christian Toto, who's the editor of HollywoodInToto.com and host of the podcast Right on Hollywood and author most recently of, I can say, a great book, a great read, Virtue Bombs, How Hollywood Got Woke and Lost Its Soul. Christian, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. We talk a bit about streaming services because some of the great content is out there. And, and I've been watching Netflix not just because... I And we've talked about it as a topic on the show because Netflix has both done some really, truly disturbing things with some of its content, made it so offensive that some of us were very much turned off to it. Uh, but then they seem to go through a bit of a course correction and realize just how, how they were screwing up. And they went back and told their staff, you know, effectively, if you don't like what we're doing now, we're doing what the audience wants. Uh, and, and if you don't like it, you can, you know, there's the door, go find a job somewhere else. But this, these most recent losses they've suffered, a gigantic loss of subscribers, what's causing that? And am I right in suspecting that at least some of what's causing it is Netflix's own behavior and not just the other competition they're facing? Oh, I think it's a lot of different factors. I think that Netflix produces a lot of content, and a whole bunch of it is just junk. And, you know, that doesn't help, as for sure, for every Stranger Things. There are, you know, dozens of other shows and movies that are just not that good. So there's that. But I, I think the increased competition, I mean, serious competition, is definitely a factor here. Disney Plus, Paramount Plus, Peacock, you know, Amazon Prime, ramping up the things that they do. Uh, you've got Hulu, which is a big player as well. Add it all together, it's hard for any one company to stay atop and stay invincible. So... I'm not too surprised to see what's going on, but I suspect what they're doing lately and really kind of embracing free speech and leaning into the comedy elements that, that has been their strength for a while, I think that's maybe making them more endearing to people on the right and for their sake, hopefully not chasing away people on the left. Well, be, believe me, there are a lot of us who are not too happy to see that big check written to Michelle and Barack Obama. And I mean, I even realist. I look, but Christian, look, I, I don't like the Obamas. I don't like the things they've said about America. I don't think I don't like what Barack Obama did to America. But if I had said, well, they're really going to be popular. So I, I would at least granted that. But I couldn't imagine for the life of me why they were worth a, you know, a, a seven or eight figure sum of money. Because I, I wondered, what are they going to put together that's going to be all that compelling? And, and of course, it wasn't all that compelling. Uh, but, but I wasn't happy that it seemed like Netflix was writing a check just to uh, a virtue signal or send a message or, or something else. So, you know, they, they, they made a dumb move in that. Are they going to be able to make the smart moves to be able to recover from this? We shall see. I, I get the sense that they're spending their money more wisely now. I think they have to spend it more wisely. But I agree with you. That, that was more of a kind of a symbolic thing. We're flush with cash. Let's throw it around. Let's make a statement or two. Because at the end of the day, whether you love Obama or hate Obama, the Obamas don't have any significant real-world experience in Hollywood and producing things. So the, you, you, don't, you shouldn't need to spend that kind of cash to bring them aboard. And, and not bringing them aboard shouldn't really hurt your bottom line either. 
it's it's interesting to see what's going on. I, you know, maybe it's it's a conservative like me just scrambling for crumbs. But the fact that Netflix has stood tall for Dave Chappelle, has stood tall for Ricky Gervais, yep. and made that big statement saying, if you don't like our content, then please go find work elsewhere. Those are not small gestures. That Those are not virtue signals. Those are significant moves in the culture wars, and they're important. So, you know, am I grumpy that a lot of the program is left of center? Sure, but it doesn't, doesn't phase me. I see that all over. And did I think that cuties was wildly inappropriate? Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, <laughs> sexualizing, you know, 10, 12, 13-year-olds was disgusting, period, full stop. But I think the company is, is doing better since then, honestly. Well, and frankly, when you said there's a lot of junk in there, I always tell people I love going to bookstores. And if somebody said, well, do you find most of what's in a bookstore worthy? I say, no, I don't. I think there's a lot of junk in bookstores, too. But if you don't publish the junk, uh, it would be if you just said, you should only publish really great books. Well, yeah, that'd be a neat trick if you could pull it off. I don't know of anybody who's figured out how to do it. And sometimes you don't realize what's really worthwhile until some time has gone by. You, you see a book that was a sleeper for a while, and then all of a sudden it's a huge success. You say, why didn't we see that this was a, a brilliant book? I, I don't know. You know, it would be great, again, if you had the talent to be able to do that. Uh, you know, there aren't, there aren't many people who can pull that off. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes watching a junkie show ain't that bad. <laughs> you know, I've watched Gilligan's Island. I remember I was in college, and I just needed a mental timeout, and that was perfect for me. So, you know, it's... It's a complicated thing. I think the good thing for consumers is that all these different streaming channels are competing against each other, competing for eyeballs, and they've got to bring the goods. And though, you know, we, we can have a silly show like Is It Cake, which I kind of enjoy on Netflix. You do want better shows, better movies, better content. And if they don't deliver, then I'm going to go to Hulu or I'm going to go to some other place. Well, and in fact, uh, if I ask you today, is Casablanca a, a classic? Uh, I think you'd probably say yes. I would say yes to that. As I understand it, at the time it was made, it was seen as, okay, we got to churn out a certain number of movies every year. <laughs> this, this is going to be kind of a, a piece of junk. Same thing is true of Animal House. It was a B movie at the time made on the cheap and to make some money. And, and it's kind of seen as a classic today of a different nature, of course, than Casablanca. Yeah, you know, it's funny. When I was a kid, I remember Flash Gordon came out. Lots of buzz, lots of excitement. And it was a flop. No one cared. No one liked it. And now people adore it because it's campy, it's cheesy, and given sort of lesser expectations, it's kind of fun. So it, it, it's fascinating from a cultural point of view how things emerge and grow and evolve as far as our tastes and as far as how we appreciate them. How about this new movie from Jordan Peele? Let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, Jordan Peele's been very successful. How about this latest movie? Yeah, two really interesting films. I thought Get Out was terrific. I thought Us was fun, but fascinating this is no, it's not very good, sadly. I really was just significantly disappointed in it. It has a UFO-style theme. Uh, you know, it's funny, Peel is famed for putting a lot of social commentary into his work, which isn't new, we talk about it all the time, but I think he's pretty good at it. I think he kind of makes it in a way where the story is engaging, the characters we care about, we're intrigued, and there's another layer there, and you could you could reject it, you can embrace it, you could argue about it, but I, I think he does a nice job of of interweaving that kind of material i didn't see much of it here and i just thought the third act is really bad uh clumsy i didn't get the motivation of the characters special effects weren't that wonderful i don't want to say anything more about it because if people do see it i want them to experience it on their own but 
this is a misfire. And I, I think Peel is a talented fellow, and I hope he rebounds with his next movie. But how does, how does that happen? Christian, I don't know how that happens, because you've got the talent. You're surrounded by people. They've, they, they have an interest in making something successful. How do they lend a, a, let a clunker like that out the door without somebody in the process? E- even a, 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 you know, authors who are really good authors generally have good editors as well. And you say, well, if you're really good, you don't need an editor. I don't think there's a writer out there that doesn't need an editor. Say, too much of this, not enough of that, you know, fix it. And, and, and does he not have those people around him? I think every artist has weak spots. I think every artist has times where they just don't bring it like they could or should. I think this part of it is you get to be a Jordan Peele. You get to be a name. You get to be a power in Hollywood. You've, you've been successful. I think either maybe egos get a little bit too big or maybe everyone is afraid to say, hey, Jordan, you know, I don't think that – the third act, I think it needs this or that. I, I think this character arc isn't working for me. Could you explore it? Maybe there's no one doing that. And I, I, I put that also to Quentin Tarantino, who's really talented and darn your genius level director. But a lot of his films are very self-indulgent. You can tell what they could be trimmed. You got to check out his podcast right on Hollywood, his book, Virtue Bombs, and I enjoyed it, how Hollywood got woke and lost its soul. Christian Toto is the editor of HollywoodandToto.com. Christian, I really appreciate the time. Thanks so very much. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Glad to get your calls, and I'll get back to those in just a moment. But I have the great pleasure of being joined by Lou Perez, who's a comedian, a filmmaker, and the author most recently of the book, That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore, on the death and rebirth of comedy. Lou, welcome to the program. I love going to comedy shows. I love watching great comedy, but I'm very worried about the future of the industry in the woke United States. Are you? You know, um, I know a lot of people are down on comedy. And, um, you know, as, as my uh, subtitle says, you know, on the death uh, of comedy. But there's also, I think, a happy, uh, happy ending and a happy future uh, on the rebirth of comedy. So I actually think that nowadays, while it seems so dire in some respects, I don't think there's a better time to be a comedian than right now and uh, in the times that we're living in. So I'm very, very positive about the future of, of comedy. In a way, I kind of have to be, because um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not very employable outside of this. So I kind of <laughs> need to make it so, you know. Not a lot of skills outside of being funny, Lou? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, you know, comedians are self-deprecating. So I, I've, I've learned over the years I can grow a pretty good steak but um, I don't know how many people are looking for that skill. Well, I guess the thing I worry about is, and maybe you're right. I mean, maybe it's great for comedians to say, okay, be funny, Lou, except here are all the things you're not allowed to be funny about. And they, they then put in a list of virtually everything in the world and say, now, be funny without any of those other things that you usually use for, for jokes or setups. Uh, I guess it's, it's anybody who can survive that as a comedian can probably do comedy anywhere. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things about uh, about comedians, you know, just sort of as a uh, as a trade, if you will, is uh, we're sort of expected to always take on whatever sacred cows happen to be propped up at the time. And, you know, if you go if you go through a list of all the things you're, quote unquote, not allowed to talk about or definitely not allowed to joke about. Well, you know, those are sacred cows and those you're basically just putting, you know, targets on all of those subjects for comedians 
to, you know, maybe live a little dangerously and try their, uh, you know, try their hand at, at making fun of it. And I think that's part of what makes things so exciting now. There, there is a, I'm not the first one to say it, but there's sort of a danger to comedy. Like, ooh, you know, here I am. I'm wading into waters you're not supposed to. Look at me and look what I'm doing. And, you know, I'm happy to say that, you know, this is an ongoing conversation. So, you know, you're not alone uh, when it comes to talking about the state of things and the fears that people have as far as, you know, what what is deemed, you know, uh, what is deemed what you're allowed to talk about. So, you know, with that, you have a whole whole lot of people, a whole lot of audience members who embrace, you know, the uh, you know, who embrace the task. And say, cool, I want to go and support comedians who are willing to put themselves out there, who are willing to take on these, uh, you know, these sacred cows. Did you see any any dearth of uh, your your colleagues in comedy making fun of, of the orange man? Uh, no, no, I did not. And, you know, one of the things that I that I remember hearing so much at the time is, you know, people would say, oh, man, this must be a great time to be a comedian because the jokes write themselves. And they were right, but for a different reason. So the way that I put it is there were a lot of comedians, especially establishment comedians, late night hosts, you know, uh, corporate uh, comedians, if you will, who allowed the jokes to write themselves, who, you know, were all just feeding off of the same orange man bags, small hands, Russian PP tape material, and then that allowed comedians like myself and other, uh, you know, and, and others like me to take on subject matter that they wouldn't take on, and so that's why I thought it, it was it was a it was a pretty splendid time for comedy because, uh, you know, these sort of two camps, if you will, kind of formed the ones who were you know going to take the easy way out and you know uh, you know go for the easy punchline, and then the other ones who were willing to say, hey. Uh, you know, there's a whole world of experience and subject matter that you're not going to touch. I'm going to dive in and see what I can do with it. Well, see, I say that I'm a, I'm a fan of President Trump. I supported him then. I support him now. In fact, I was one of the earlier national talk show hosts who supported Trump, but I never went to the stupid, uh, you know, never Trumper, uh, you know, corner of the of the room. But having said that, I have to imagine that Joe Biden. I mean, that guy, you know. <laughs> He screws up badly enough that, that you would think he would be very rich with comedy. And as I understand it, an awful lot of the woke types are saying, well, I'm not going to joke about Joe Biden and his apparent, you know, uh, uh, creeping uh, dementia and everything else that's going on and the colossal disasters he's bringing about in practical terms. And you've got one guy who's at the center of all that. You'd think that would lend itself to an awful lot of comedy. And yet, do you see your colleagues going there the way they did for Trump or with Trump? Um well, well, I guess I guess we'd have to, you know, define uh, colleagues. Um, there are definitely comedians that I look up to and whose work that I enjoy. For example, there's a comedian named Kyle Dunnigan who does probably the best Joe Biden impression out there, and he's just absolutely fantastic uh, lampooning the president. And there are others out there who are, you know, who are willing to lampoon them. Um, the, the thing that I, that I find interesting in comparing Joe Biden to Donald Trump, in a lot of ways, Joe Biden is kind of the character that that a lot of people wanted Donald Trump to be. That is Lou Perez. His new book is called That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore on the Death and Rebirth of Comedy. Lou, thanks very much. I appreciate the time. Your phone calls and emails coming up next on the Lars Larson Show.
With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com.